All right, hi. How are we? We good? Good. It's really nice outside. Like, do you guys know what you're missing? <laughs> I'm glad you're here, though. Uh, hey, so we're in the middle of this series, What in the World is God Doing? Uh, it's been a cool series. In case you, you missed a few or need reminded or it's your first time or whatever, here's what we're doing. Uh, we're, we're taking a look at all the different ministries all throughout the world that we get to support uh, as a church, as, as Flatirons. And the reason it's been a cool series is because of this. Not only are we learning more about our global outreach partnerships, but, but we're also learning this great truth, which is God is the same everywhere, like no matter where you go. And then people are the same everywhere, no matter where you go. And so if you've been in here, you know that like whether we've looked at Afghanistan or Africa or we're looking at Colorado, we, we see that God is always on the same exact mission. And his mission is to seek and save people who are lost and broken in all the same ways that we are. And so in this cool kind of like backwards way, we're learning about who God is and what he wants for us here in Colorado by looking at who he is and what he wants for people in different parts of the world. And it's just been a cool series, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to talk about a, a truth that we find in the Bible, a truth that goes like this. Jesus has called us friends. He's called us friends. And we're going to look at this truth because we're taking a look at one of our partners called Global Scope. And Global Scope is a campus, uh, campus ministry that serves college students all over the world. And Global Scope, probably more than any other ministry that I've personally looked into, they take Jesus very seriously when he says that he's called us friends and they know what to do with that. So Jesus has called us friends. But if I'm completely honest with you, like that one truth there on the screen, I don't get it. Like, I, it, it, honestly, it is one of the things, it's the thing I struggle with the most in believing out of everything I read in the Bible, that Jesus would call me a friend. Like, when, so when he calls me a son or an heir or, or, or one of his people or a disciple, I get, I get it, right? Like, my brain's like, okay. Even when he calls me a sheep, <laughs> there's something about me, I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of sheepish, I guess. <laughs> like, I get it, I'm tracking. But when he calls me a friend, I don't, my mind, it like, farts, basically, you know? Like a quiet one, <laughs> like, <pfft>. but <laughs> that's gross and inappropriate. <laughs> but <laughs> it's true, it's true, I just draw a blank. Like, I have no category for why he would ever call me a friend. And I'll explain why I struggle with that so much, but for me to even explain that, first, let's just talk about friendship in general, like friendship with other people, because even that freaks me out if I'm being honest. So here's the Benfoot uh, definition of friendship. It's this. Friendship is when someone else knows the real you and they like you anyway. That's what friendship is. Like they, they, they discovered your weird side and they didn't bail on you. That's what being a friend is. And in theory, it sounds great. Like in theory, I, I like that. I want that in my life. But in practice, it's risky. It's so risky. Because to develop a friendship like that It requires two things of you. First, it requires that you be known. And the second, it requires that you be chosen. And both of those are risky. I'll I'll explain. So, So first of all, if all you want is a bunch of acquaintances in your life, then keep protecting yourself, right? You know, keep people at arm's length and don't let them too close into here. But if you want more than that, if you want friendship, then you have to be known. And what I mean is you got to be open and honest and vulnerable with someone else. And that's dangerous. 
Because what, what if they leave you? And what if they take what they've learned about you and they use it to hurt you? It's dangerous. Being known is risky. And then not only do you have to be known, after that, you still gotta be chosen, right? Because what I mean is I can't just go up to anyone that I think is cool and go, hey, like, we're, you're my friend and I'm your friend now. Like, we're friends, so congratulations. <laughs> and then we're blood brothers or something. That's not how it works. Like, at the end of the day, when you think about it, friendship only happens when the other person calls you a friend, they get to decide whether or not they like you, and you don't have any control over that decision. It's, it, you're running the risk of rejection. It's risky. The whole friendship thing is just dangerous and risky, and so there's a lot of us in this room, and myself definitely included in this. Like This is one of the biggest things God's been teaching me lately. There's a bunch of us who have looked at friendship, and we've realized it's risky, and so we just kind of opted out of the thing entirely. Right? We got buddies, lots of buddies, lots of people that we spend time with and we laugh with and we, and we like them, but, but, but deep friendships, like where they know you, and we have very few of those. And I know that both men and women do this. I know that. But I kind of feel like it's more of a guy thing. I think there's something in, our, the, in a man's brain, like we all got short-circuited centuries ago, and now we can't stop running risk-reward analysis on everything. And so our robot brains see the risk in friendship, and it, our brains are just like, does not compute, <laughs> like stay away, and we don't engage. Like, at least that's how I feel. Um, here's like a random, like one in a thousand examples of how this plays out in my life. So, so if I ever get home from work, and, and my wife, Allie's telling me about her day. It, whenever she says something like, so-and-so came over and brought, you know, brought her kids and she came to the house and we hung out. Whenever she says that, I always respond, oh, cool, what did you do? What did you do together? As if the only rational reason to be around a human being is if the two of you are like working towards something together and, and pr producing something. And anytime I say, what did you do? She always responds, oh, nothing, we just talked. And honestly, I'm not exaggerating, every time, like there's a full two seconds where I short circuit and like stop what I'm doing and I'm confused why you would ever do this with a pe person, just sit around and talk. I don't get it. Like some of you are going to think I'm weird for this and that's fine. Others of you, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. I get confused because of this. Like when I think about me and one of my buddies, all right, if he calls and is like, hey, you want to go grab a beer and watch a baseball game, then sure. I would love to do that. I, I love baseball. I, yeah, that's great. We're watching something. We're commenting on it. We're doing something together. All right? I like that. But if my buddy calls me and he's like, wants to come to my house and sit on my carpet and talk about our feelings <laughs> at like 10 a.m. on a Tuesday like a psychopath, <laughs> like, no, like, get out of here. You know? You're a serial killer. I'm too young to die. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't get it. There's just like, there's something in my brain that's like, no way. Like, like I don't want to be known. You know, it's too risky. You know, like, what if I say too much? Or what if I get honest and then they, they're like, okay, bye, Ben, forever, right? Like, it's too risky. Sounds good on paper. In practice, it's dangerous. So if you want to watch baseball, sure. Right? If you want to get to know me, you know, not so much because I've been doing fine on my own. So I don't need to throw in messy friendships, right? That's how I approach it. And if you resonate with that, if, if that's you and you do the same thing, then like me, I bet that you also have trouble believing that Jesus would ever call you a friend. 
right? Because if we struggle with believing that other people could know us and like us, people who can only know as much about you as you let them know, well, then of course we struggle with the idea that Jesus would call us a friend because he knows everything. He's God. But according to the Bible, it's true. I'm trying to figure it out, but it's true. The Bible says that Jesus actually is dedicated to an actual friendship with us, like where he knows the real you and he likes you anyway. And so let's take a look at it. So this is, this is like best outlined and described probably in John 15. In John 15, it's Jesus talking and he's talking to his disciples. These are the 12 guys that he's handpicked to like just do life with and, and spend all of his time with. And he's talking to them. And as he does, he gives a command and he gives one command twice. And, and, and here's the command. So once in verse 12, he says this, he goes, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So love people in the same way that I loved you. And then again in verse 17, he says, this is my command, love each other. All right, and and anytime you see the same exact command twice, like real close to each other in the Bible, the Bible is making like a sandwich out of those commands, all right? And everything in the middle of the sandwich is going to explain what that command looks like in action, what it looks like when it's practiced. That's just a literary device that's used all over the Bible. I don't know what the technical term for the device is, but if it's not command witch, I'm mad because <laughs> command witch is cool. <laughs> so, so Jesus commands us twice to love people in the same way that he's loved us. And then in the middle, Jesus describes the way that he's loved us, the thing that we're supposed to mimic. And he describes his love for us as a friendship. So he says this, this is Jesus talking. He says, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And what's crazy about that one small verse is in that one verse, we see all of the requirements for a friendship being met for us by Jesus. I'll explain. So, you know, first of all, we're known right? Because Jesus knows everything. And so this is the one friendship that actually isn't dependent on you being brave and vulnerable. He already knows you. And then not only does he know you, but he chooses you. Jesus says, I have called you friends. And he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So Jesus knows us and chooses to call us friends. And so in that one small verse, without us having to do anything, other than just say thank you and accept it. We see that Jesus has eliminated all of the risk that comes with a friendship so that you and I can cut right to the chase. We get right to the good stuff, which is Jesus knows the real you and he likes you anyway. We get to go right to that. He's called us friends. But then Jesus doesn't stop there, all right? So, so the rest of the, the middle of the command, which I'm going to try and get it started. So the, in the middle of the command, which he describes what his friendship looks like, all right? And I think he does this because I think that, you know, people don't change in thousands of years. And so I think he's trying to explain that this friendship is different than him being your buddy, or your pal, or your bro, or whatever. It's better than that. It's more powerful than that. And so he describes what his friendship looks like. And he says stuff like this. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so Jesus' friendship is self-sacrificing, 
right? And, and yes, he sacrifices literal life for us on a cross, but everything before that and even after now today, he sacrifices everything else for us, time and energy and emotion. He sacrifices that on behalf of his friends. He gives himself away for us. So Jesus' friendship is self-sacrificing. He also says this. He goes, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. And so he says, hey, like I'm going to make myself known to you now. Like I'm gonna open up and, and let you know me. And so this isn't a servant to master relationship. This isn't a relationship where it's like, hey, you don't get to know me. All that matters is what you can do for me. And we have trouble picturing that, right? Because first of all, church almost never talks about it that way, right? Most of the time, church talks about what you have to do for Jesus. And then second of all, like this concept is at the root of all of our relationships, even the most healthy ones. We're getting something out of it, right? Whether that's, that's love or support or encouragement, wisdom, whatever, we're getting something out of it. But Jesus... He says that he is the one who serves his friends, not the other way around. And that, maybe that alone is enough to blow our minds for a week. That's not how we typically picture it. Your relationship, your friendship with Jesus is not about what you can do for him. Instead, it is about what he has done and will continue to do for you. And so this is the only friendship you'll ever have that is wholly, purely, entirely, like 100% for your sake. And then the last thing he, he talks about in the command, which to describe his, his friendship is this. He, he explains the defining trait of his friendship. And it goes like this. It's in that first verse we read. He says, I've called you friends, and then everything after this, this is how he's called you friends and why. I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. And so the defining trait of a friendship with Jesus is that Jesus makes the father, God, known to us. He shows us what God looks like. All right, he doesn't guilt us into it. He doesn't shove it down our throats. He doesn't whine and beg and plead for us to know God more. He makes God known to us through his friendship. That's Jesus' friendship toward us. And I know it's a lot of information in a really short amount of time. So let me take all those different pieces of Jesus' friendship and kind of summarize it into one thought. Here's what Jesus' friendship looks like. Jesus sacrifices himself for our sake so that we can know what God looks like. That is what it means when Jesus says he's called us friends. Now, so for the rest of our time, we're gonna spend it a little bit differently. Because we're gonna sing and dance together. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to see how quiet it got. It got super quiet. <laughs> I almost believed it and left. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, it is a little different, though, because here's how I'm going to sp spend the rest of my time. I just, I just cracked myself up. <laughs> so I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking to Christians, all right? I'm going to ask a question to Christians. And, and so if you're the person in the room and you've not put your faith in Jesus, um, you're just kind of here to see what all the fuss is about, first of all, I'm glad you're here. 
Like I was in your shoes when I came here for the first time. And you can belong here before you believe. So I'm glad you're here. And second of all, you're kind of off the hook for the rest of the day because I'm going to talk to the Christians. All I would say to you is, is this. If the whole Jesus, faith, Christianity, friendship with God thing is true, if it is true, then logically speaking, it's also the most important thing going on in the world, right? And, and I know, because I've been in your shoes for, I was, was in your shoes for a decade, I know it sounds too good to be true, I know it sounds like a fairy tale, and I know it sounds like there'd be some catch to the whole thing. But I can, I can promise you that what Jesus offers is a no-catch, no-strings-attached relationship with God himself. And if it is true, then it's probably worth just, like, keep it in the back of your mind for the next week and keep thinking on it. And it's worth coming back next week and looking into more. All right? But for today, you're off the hook because I'm going to talk to the Christians. You'll probably want to stick around anyway because I'm going to ask myself and the other Christians in a room a question. And it's one that you've been probably dying to ask us anyway. You just didn't want to be rude, you know? And so for the Christians in the room, and trust me, I'm absolutely including myself on this challenge. So yes, yes, we should feel overwhelmed by, you know, this idea of Jesus's friendship, that he knows the real you and he likes you anyway. We should, you know, be floored in awe and thankfulness for that. We should. But we're not allowed to stop there because it's a command which, and we have a command and we can't forget it. The command is to love other people in the same way that Jesus has loved us. And now that we understand that he talked about it in light of, of friendship, you, we could phrase our command like this. Christians are commanded to be great friends. That's an order to be great friends. We are commanded to befriend the world in the same way that Jesus befriended us, to sacrifice ourselves, our safety, comfort, security, our time and money and energy, what we want and our desires, to sacrifice those things for the good of other people. And we do that so that the world can see what God looks like through us. Christians are commanded to be great friends. And so my question is this. And for me, at least, it's like heartbreaking and convicting. So when people who are not Christians talk about us, do they typically say things like, I don't know if I believe everything that Ben believes, but I can tell you this, he makes for a great friend. My question is, is this, is the most common description of Christians that they make great friends? And the answer is no. No, not typically. In fact, Christians are typically described with words like judgmental, hypocritical, gossipers, self-righteous, mean, hateful, exclusive. And so no. The description that immediately jumps to people's minds is not typically Christians make great friends. And so the painful but necessary follow-up question is this. Could it be that the reason people don't first and foremost describe us as great friends, couldn't it be that that's because we aren't being great friends to people? And if you're anything like me, and you feel like you could look at your history of friendship and answer yes to that question, 
then you and I should change that. As individuals and as a community here at Flatirons and as the capital C like worldwide church, this is supposed to be the number one thing that we have to offer the world, our friendship. When I say world, I'm not talking about world systems. I'm not talking about, uh, so I'm not talking about embracing a culture that seems to drift further and further away from the values we find in Jesus. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being complacent to this world concept of, of like, you know, me first and, and how does this play out for me. I'm not talking about that. When I say world, I'm talking about every person trapped in it. I'm talking about people, everyone no matter where they live, and no matter whether or not you like them, we're commanded to offer our friendship to the world. And not just any friendship, but a friendship that's modeled after and reveals Jesus, the thing where we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others with no strings attached. There's no catch. We just like people for who they are right now, not who we hope they'll become. There's no catch, which means we, we offer friendship, like even if we don't like them right now, and even if they don't like us, and even if they never once step foot in this building, we offer friendship. That's what the church is supposed to offer. We're supposed to boldly walk into a hostile world and offer it our friendship so that Jesus can show them what God looks like. So why aren't we typically described as Christians make great friends? My question is like, do we believe it's possible? Like, do we believe that Jesus could use broken people like us to do that? Or I guess my other question is, do we think that Jesus being displayed through literally only our friendship, do we believe that's enough? Hey Flatirons, today we are in Edinburgh, Scotland, where we are uh, meeting up with our partner, uh, Globoscope. Globoscope is an international ministry that focuses on the hearts of university students all over the world. You know, I, I think over the last several years, I've become more and more convicted that, you know, whatever time I have left uh, before, it's like, okay, Jim, go to the mountains and thanks for your time. I, I know that I'm supposed to be spending my my life, my bandwidth, not just teaching at Flatirons and not just, you know, doing what we're doing, but investing in that next generation. Globoscope does that well. And, and they're, they're, they are that first wave of introduction to who Jesus is. I'm standing right now in one of the oldest churches in Edinburgh. We met the priest when we came in. He pointed out that this building is older than the United States has been around. You know, some of the statistics uh, say that uh, Scotland, uh, I think is be pretty typical of most of Europe, is that uh, the, those who call themselves uh, Christian, it's less than five, five percent. In the conversations we're having uh, with some of the staff people here at Globoscope, you know, we asked the question, why, why is that? Um, there was a time, I think in human history, where out of fear of hell or rules that you have to live by, uh, or you get hit with some, you know, divine stick or something like that, that was enough to keep people in line. And over time, that, that has been replaced by better questions. Uh, why is that important? What difference does that make? What difference are you making in the world? Why do you care about me and why should I care about that? Those are the questions, they're hard questions. 
And a lot of times we avoided it and just accepted the answer be just because, right? And now people are asking, I think, better questions. And if the answers don't come back in a, in a good and, and reasonable way, people will just tap out and say, I'll, I'll look for something else. It's happening in Europe, it's happening in America, it's, ha it's happening across the world. But, but, but God is still there uh, working through things like Globoscope to say, I'm here, I love you, I can, I'm not afraid of your questions, and I, I do want a relationship with you. And the people that are coming and sticking are finding that relationship, sitting around a, a table, having coffee, having a beer, whatever that is, and then that transfers over. If, if these people care, maybe God cares as well. So I went to school in Tübingen, Germany, which also has a global scope ministry and it's called Unterwegs. And I had some really bad experiences when I was in high school with Christians who were very hateful towards me and um, towards my family too. I thought this is what, if like people want me to be like this, to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. Right. And um, when I came to uni, I was in a place kind of like Laura, like I had been looking for people that were just my people and hadn't found them and it's a big university and I was just like lonely and lost and needed community and Untervix was that community and after a while I started asking myself what is different about this like why are people not gossiping here why are they so nice all the time what's the what's the cat or what's like what's the reason right. and I think I realized after a while, I think it must be their faith. I think it must be God or something. And I couldn't explain, but I wanted to know. And it hasn't been like, it's been like a, a journey that like, that took a while. And there's no like point in time where I could say, oh, this magical thing happened and now I'm a Christian. It's like a thing that came slowly, but I'm very glad for that because I think it like built a really strong foundation. I think that so much of what Globoscope does is through actions. I think that the fact that they create these communities that just bring people in, make people able to be who they are, feel truly loved for who they are. Like, yeah, I was one of those students who came in completely lost, this like quiet being who a year later got baptized. I stand up and I do talks, I run small groups. And I think just being able to be a part of these students' lives is really, really important. It's worth supporting because there are so many students out here that are just like I was, like they have hardened their hearts towards Christianity and it takes a long time to like, to soften that. And it takes, it takes like a lot of patience and a lot of, we're not gonna like spring God and Jesus on you. <laughs> we're gonna let you be and like give you a home and give you community and give you what you need and give you love and wait for you to come to us because that is how it worked for me. That is how it has worked for so many students. And it's something that I haven't seen in any other um, ministry like we do it. There are some of the best universities on the planet where this is where the leaders are gonna come from. The judges, the, 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 uh, the, the business leaders of the world, they're gonna come up through this system, but they're gonna come up through this system with Christ in their heart. And then as God puts them in places of influence, they're gonna use that platform as much as any platform I've ever stood on to proclaim Christ. They're gonna do that through their business and through their, through their, their government and through their uh, whatever it is that God has given them to leverage. We wanna raise up a generation of leaders to change the world uh, in the name of Christ.
it, it's going to look different because it's harder and it's slower, but it's, it's real and it's happening. God is doing something here and we get to be part of it. Yeah, so I, I'm going to talk a little more about Global Scope's like vision and passion and why they do what they do. But I need you to keep this in mind. I need to say this now. As I'm talking about it, if your heart starts to beat faster, then you, please get on our website, like slash Global Scope. You can find out more information there, how to, how to support them, how to help. Uh, we have booths in all of our lobbies with the what in the world is God doing graphic up uh, in the, at the booth. Go talk to them. They can tell you more about Global Scope. But then specifically, if you're a young adult, and as I'm talking about this, your heart starts beating and you're like, I think I could do like a year abroad. Like, I think I could serve with them in, in, in Germany, Scotland, England, wherever. Like, I think I would like to be a part of that. Then Phil, who's the director for Global Scope, is going to be here next weekend. And he's ho hosting a couple informational gatherings for people who might be interested in long-term serving with them. And so you need to go get information on that. It's on the website. But really what you need to do is you need to go out to the lobby and uh, talk to the people at the booth about it. So... Please keep that in mind as I'm talking about Global Scope. So, what is the vision and direction of Global Scope? Uh, so, I'm, earlier this week, I'm talking with Stephen Krieger. He's our Longmont campus pastor, and Longmont lucked out. He's a super great guy. Um, but I'm talking with Stephen because Stephen and his wife Hillary, they actually served for two years with Global Scope in England, in Birmingham. And so Stephen is kind of telling me about his time with Global Scope, and he keeps talking about these deep friendships that he built. And, you know, to be completely honest, I, I'm basically keep interrupting him and essentially going, Stephen, it's cool that you made friends, but what did you do, right? Like, you know, just like me and Allie, like you had a friend over, cool, what'd you do? And Stephen was patient with me and he would give me, anytime I did that, he'd give me an example of some sort of event that they might have run. But eventually the conversation always came back toward Stephen sharing Jesus with people through friendship. And so he would talk about these like year-long relationships, you, you know, like he was there for two years, these relationships that he put everything into and got nothing out of. And he, and he would talk about these like great unexpected questions about God that would finally come from some student that he never thought would ask. Or he, he told me a story about a buddy who was going through a really hard time. And so Stephen was like, hey, would you like want to go read through the life of Jesus? I think it could apply to a lot of the stuff you're talking about. And the guy finally said yes. And then he eventually believed. He would tell stories like that. And I'm listening. But of course, in my mind, I'm like, Stephen, like cut to the chase, dude. Like, what do you do? And I kept thinking that until Stephen said something that kind of made everything click for me. And he actually, he was quoting his wife, Hillary. And so Stephen's telling me about what Hillary claims to be the number one, like the best thing she learned through Global Scope, which is this. She learned to change her idea of what it means to be a Christian. And here's how being a Christian changed for Hillary. Here's how she describes it. As a Christian, I don't have a job to do. I have a life to share. That's, that's wisdom. It's pure gold. Like that's the screen to take a picture of. It's John 15. That's it. Christians, we don't have a job to do. We have a life to share. And when Stephen said that, it finally clicked with me. I finally realized that friendship isn't some nice, like unexpected byproduct of some other thing that Global Scope does. Instead, friendship is what Global Scope does. 
And sure, they, they do other things in the way that I think about it, especially after talking with Stephen, they do a lot. They host countless ev events. They start and run and maintain these environments at universities all over the world. It's a full-blown like, organization. There's lots to do. But everything they do serves the end goal, which is making God known through deep, authentic, Christ-like friendship. That's what they do. And so Global Scope, they, they've settled in near university campuses all over the world, and they've created these environments that students are drawn to. They just want to be there because it's cool, and there's nice people there. And then the people with Global Scope, they're open and honest with everyone that walks through the front door about their faith. It's just that they're not abrasive about it. And they talk about Jesus. Like, as I was learning from Stephen, it turns out I was kind of shocked about how often they talk about Jesus and don't lose people. It's because they're not being weird about it. That's what Global Scope does. Global Scope believes that people are more likely to enter into a friendship with Jesus if they've first seen a shadow of how good that friendship could be on display through us. And they're right, and it works. Laura and Hannah, the two women interviewed in that video, they now work for Global Scope. But years ago, when they were lost and lonely and broken and hurting, they didn't go looking for Jesus. They went looking for friends. And at Global Scope, they found both. It works. And it works because we see Jesus doing this for the majority of his life, like 99.9% .9 of his life. When you think about it, until the cross, friendship was the primary arena in which Jesus made the Father known. He was just a good friend. He just hung out with people. He would walk through the streets and go find social outcasts and sit and talk with them. And he invited strangers and enemies to dinner. He asked great questions. And then he listened so closely to their answers. He went to funerals, he went to weddings, he went to parties. He was a good friend. In fact, he went to so many parties that he was even accused of being a drunk. It wasn't true, but he didn't care what people were saying or thinking about him because Jesus knew that in those moments, at those parties, what people needed more than a lecture on sobriety or a guilt trip or definitely some weird impromptu party Bible study <laughs> What he knew that they needed more than all of those things was his friendship. And so that's what he offered. And he did a lot of stuff like we think about doing stuff. He, you know, he led people and he taught and he performed miracles. But when you look at it, I mean, when you read through it, everything he did served the end goal, which is to make God known through a deep and authentic friendship with himself. He had a life to share. Jesus knew that and Global Scope knows that, but do we? Like, do we take it seriously when Jesus says Christians are commanded to be great friends? And if we haven't taken that seriously, but we want to, like myself, then what does that even look like? And I want to share with you what I think it looks like, and then we're going to get out of here. Because I think it looks different than what we typically imagine. So like usually when we imagine that we have to share the life of Jesus with people, we usually don't end that thought with by sharing it through our lives. We don't put that at the end of the sentence. We just think we have to share the life of Jesus and we don't know how. And so we imagine that we got to go knock on doors and pass out free Bibles or something. And that just feels like it would be awkward and unnatural because it is. 
you know? And so we don't wanna do it. We get freaked out and we're like, I guess that's not for me. I'm not gonna do that. But what John 15 teaches us is that it's way more natural than that. What John 15 teaches us, Jesus says, sharing the life of Jesus is simply, it simply happens by sharing your life with other people because your life is being transformed by him. And that's it. It looks like friendship in the way that we've talked about it. This thing where we share our lives by sacrificing ourselves for the good of others so that they can see what God looks like. It looks like just being great friends. And that should happen in at least two ways. All right, the first one is individually. Like I should be a great friend to everyone, even if I don't like them, that is in my you know, personal circles of influence. And you should be doing the same thing. We should do this individually. But I can't stand on a stage and give you practical next steps for that. Because I don't know your dynamic. I don't know you and your relationships. I can't tell you what that looks like. You gotta figure that out on your own. I would say just take a picture of that screen and then keep your eyes out for ways that you can share your life with other people. So we should be doing this individually, but that's not what I want to talk about. That's not how how I want to end today. Instead, I want to end with this truth. We should also be doing this as a church, as a community. So Flatirons Community Church, it should be a great friend to the cities that we live in. And I do know what that could look like, and it's something that we get to be a part of right away next weekend, because next weekend is our food drive. Now, okay, so we've done the food drive for years. It's been over a decade now, which kind of blows my mind. But we've done it forever. And so on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, I'm afraid it kind of becomes this thing where we know the drill. All right, at least that's how I felt for a couple years, right? It's like, we know that we're gonna go through the doors when we leave. We get a grocery bag with a food list stapled to it. You buy some groceries, come back next week. There's a big pile in the lobby, it looks cool. All the food gets donated to, to food banks and food pantries all over Denver. Like, yeah, we, we know the drill, we've done it before. We'll do it again. But if that's our mindset, we're missing an opportunity to practice what we preach. So let me pitch to you what the food drive is actually all about. And I'm passionate about it because student ministry leads this thing. And I used to get to be a part of student ministry. And so I'm very passionate about it. Here's what it is actually about. And we should wrap our heads around it. It's a chance for us as a church, as Flatirons, to put our like, money where our mouth is, basically. And to prove to our cities that we really do desire, even though we suck at it sometimes, and we know that, we really do desire as a church to be a great friend to Lafayette and Aurora and Denver, to West, to all the, to all the places that we serve. We really do want to be a great friend. It's our chance to prove it. And just like Global Scope and just like Jesus, this is something that we can do together as a community in order to serve the end goal which is to build relationship with people and to build a friendship that shows what God looks like. And so let me challenge us with something. All right, so I think it's easy to forget when we're in here every single weekend, but you and I, we should never forget that we are a massive church. We shouldn't forget it. Our, so the youth, the youth group alone at Lafayette is bigger than I think it's 95 or 96% of the churches in the world. We are a massive church. 
Tens of thousands of us come here at, to five different campuses in five different cities. Even more of us gather in homes in, in places everywhere from California to Australia to South Africa. It's shocking what we keep finding out. We're a massive church, and the size of our community affects the volume of our voice. So just due to the sheer number of people who come here every single week, our actions speak loudly. And so there are people who have not walked in here yet and do not believe in Jesus, and they are basing their opinion of Jesus on our church because we're loud. And so if we do this poorly, we send a bad message to people. If we do it well, we send a great message to people. An example of this would be back in December when you and I, we pitched in whatever cash we had in order to buy cars for, for single moms and families in crisis. That action spoke loudly. Then entire cities turned their heads. People turned their heads to what they think is that orange sticker church, right? But they're turning their heads towards Jesus. And they're going, maybe those Christians aren't so bad after all. And if that's the case, maybe Jesus isn't so bad either. And I guess what I'm trying to, to say is that God has given us a gift that we, we never really asked for, which I'm thankful for. And, and we never really think about very often, which I'm thankful for. But still, he has given Flatirons the gift and responsibility of volume. Meaning, when, whenever we get our tens of thousands of hearts beating in sync with God's heart at the same time, God just does this thing where he cranks the whole thing to 11. And we get is loud. And I love that. And I don't believe that God gave us this gift of volume so that flat irons could be famous. Screw that. I don't, I, don't, I don't want any part of that. I believe he gave us the gift of volume to make himself famous. I believe he gave us the gift of volume so that he could do things so good through us, so loud through us, that it would be ringing in people's ears for eternity. I really do believe that. I'm not pulling on heartstrings or exaggerating. I believe that that is what God has given us the gift to be a part of. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be quiet when he gave us the ability to crank it to 11. And so I'm going to ask the same question that Jesus did. What greater love is there? How could it get better than to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others? Or in our case, in the context of what we have the opportunity to be a part of next weekend with the food drive, the question is this, what greater love is there than to buy out King Supers until the shelves are empty, <laughs> right? And in case you don't know me well enough to know how crazy I am, I'm not kidding or exaggerating when I say that. I mean it literally. What if we clean out King Supers? Do we realize how many people would turn their heads back toward Jesus? Do we realize how many people might walk through these front doors for the first time and hear about Jesus for the first time only because they first walked through the doors of a grocery store that looked like it had been to the post-apocalypse and back? <laughs> so like what greater love is there than that? to display to our cities? And how long would that act of friendship, that act of Jesus, ring and echo in our city streets? And what greater love is there than to get together with your friends or with your small group and, and include the people who don't believe Jesus yet? 
and you pitch your money together and you rent a U-Haul and you go to the grocery and you fill the thing from top to bottom. Like seriously, what greater love could be displayed to our cities that when they're driving by, mad about the traffic, all they see are U-Haul trucks. Like they would turn their heads back toward Jesus. How long would that ring an echo in our neighbor's ears? And what greater love is there than to ask every single person in your office, like, could you be willing to donate one bag of groceries or two or three? And then when they ask you, why are you doing this? You get to share the life of Jesus with them through your life. You get to put on display exactly what it is that God looks like. What greater love is there than that? And how long would that ring and echo in your company and in your cubicles? I would say eternity. That's what the food drive is supposed to be about. That's what we should get to be a part of next weekend. It's this gift that comes with the responsibility that God gave us. It's an opportunity for us to crank it to 11 and shout to our cities, we come in friendship. And so does our God. He comes in friendship. I was talking to Jim about this concept yesterday, and and he said this. He goes, with our potential level of volume, just because of the sheer numbers here, like when we do stuff like we did in December with the cars and what we're about to do with the food drive, just because of the sheer numbers, it's loud. And so he said, with our potential level of volume, if we could become the church, if Flatirons Community Church could become this place where people look at us and describe us as You know, they are friends to me in the way that I could imagine Jesus being a friend to me. If Flatirons could be described and be known as that church, Jim said, like, we couldn't build campuses fast enough. We couldn't contain what God would do through this place. And it's true. And so what I'm asking is to crank it to 11 next week. Show up loud next weekend. Let's fill our lobbies with so much food that we can't make it out of our auditoriums. We got to go through the fire exits. That'd be cool anyway, (laughs) right? I've never been out those doors. (laughs) And let's show up loud and let's do that in the name of Jesus, but for the sake of our cities, for the sake of our friends that we love and they don't know what they're missing. And most importantly, for the sake of our God's fame. Show up loud next weekend. Pray with me. All right, so God, this friendship thing, like, you know I'm <laughs> having trouble with it. Like, I can wrap my head around it enough to teach on it, I, but it's, it's so hard to believe in my heart and feel that like you would actually know the real me. You know me better than I know me. You know the stuff about me that no one knows and you like me, I can believe that you would know everything about me and die for me and you would still be my king and you would still be my Lord. I can't, I struggle with believing that you're my friend and you like me, like you enjoy my company. God, what I'm asking for is for us in the room to like catch that somehow, teach us that somehow, prove it. God, what I'm also asking for is to break our hearts in the way that your heart is broken. Like help us to see people the way you see people. When they frustrate us and when they make us mad, help us to see them the way you see them. The strangers on the street, help us to see them the way you see them. 
God, help us to understand as a church, as a community that you've given this gift of volume to. Help us to, to hold on to that, to take it seriously, to honor you with it for your fame and for your glory. Help us to understand this thing where like there are people who need you but they don't know it yet because right now all they need is dinner. It's all they can think about. God, help us to meet that need so that you can be made known to our world and do that through us. We would be honored and we'd be humbled if you do that through us. And we pray that that's what happens next week and the week after and after and after. God, make yourself famous through us. We love you and we pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.